Welcome to Investment Moments with Momentum Investments, where we talk to investment professionals and financial experts about investments and savings. We unpack all things investments to give you better insights for the important discussions with your clients to help them to achieve their goals. I'm Neil Hubert, Communications Manager, and joining me today is Paul Nixon, Head of Behavioral Finance at Momentum Investments. Welcome, Paul. Hey, uh, Neil. That's good to be here. Thank you. So, Paul, just um, give us some background on yourself and what you do at Momentum Investments, please. Um, Neil, so I started in in the field of behavioral finance uh, probably about 10, 10 or 12 years or so ago in, in a bank called Barclays, um, and they had a really fantastic behavioral finance capability and, and really kind of it got me interested in, in how human beings make financial decisions, particularly and how we make um, and why we make such bad financial decisions um, sometimes. So, so over my career, I've kind of gotten closer and closer to behavioral finance until now I've got the opportunity to, you know, to establish something for momentum investments. Um, and at the end of the day, it's all just about um, yeah, helping people to make better financial decisions. So. Okay, thanks, Paul. So, yeah, I just wanted to, before we get into the details, just explain to us what behavioral finance is. You mentioned that it's about helping people to make or how people make financial decisions. Um, just give us a background on behavioral finance as a field of study because it's relatively new and also where it's progressed to um, in the last couple of years. Yeah, Neil, so I think there's, there's two parts to that, right? So making financial decisions is tough, right? So if we think back to the Walter Mitchell uh, marshmallow experiments from the, you know, from the 1970s at Stanford um, University, that's a really, really great um, example of how, of how people make financial decisions, right? So for those of you who, listeners who can't remember what those things were about, and Epson really popularized this um, in, a, in an advert that they released probably a, you know, a couple of decades ago. But, but basically, a, a sort of a six or seven-year-old child was asked, um, given a marshmallow, and if they managed to not eat the marshmallow immediately and wait you know, a few minutes, they were then given another marshmallow. And sort of just to, just to see this kind of how the, how the child's kind of reaction, I mean, the child knows exactly what the right thing to do is, right? That's kind of wait, uh, wait for the marshmallow because you get two, right? But, um, but that's definitely not what's comfortable. So what's comfortable is to eat the marshmallow right now. And it's this kind of, you know, that's a really good example of how we've got this constant tension between what's right and what's comfortable. You know, we need to save, um, but we also want to spend now. Yeah. You know, so, so that really kind of is a, it's a nice example of um, kind of how our brains are almost in this constant war um, between what is right and what's comfortable. And that, that's especially relevant in financial decisions. Okay, great. So you mentioned our brains now. So talk to me a bit about the neuroscience and the and how that plays into financial decisions because um, there's been a lot of advances in neurosciences and that, how that plays into behavioral finance and, and the field. So I think, Neil, yeah, I think just to, to come back to a question maybe that I kind of um, just to ta- taper onto what we what we talked about now. So, so where behavioral finance as a, as a field has kind of moved to. Um, so kind of the field was, was popularized in, in 2008 when Richard Thaler, who's the, of course, the Nobel Prize winner, published a book called Nudge with Cass Sunstein as well. And uh, and it sort of it really kind of put to the fore these two polar opposite kind of beings, right? So there was there was Spock, Mr. Spock, who's kind of the Vulcan, kind of hyper rational, um, kind of being always makes the right decisions or strives to make the right decisions, you know. And then the other side of the the coin, we've got Homer Simpson, who's kind of almost you know the the epitome of someone who's irrational, kind of who who you know kind of just wants to have a beer and a and sort of a donut, um, and who's actually almost foolish. And the problem with that is kind of putting these things in polar opposites like that is people don't really identify 
with either of those, right? So, you know, a lot of people had a lot of fun, you know, conferences and sort of, you know, I've done a lot of conferences and these kind of things where you speak about these examples of how people make, you know, kind of processing errors. And you can show these really, really cool videos where, you know, kind of people, there's that gorilla video where kind of a gorilla walks in and people actually completely miss the gorilla because they're kind of, um, they're more focused on counting, you know, kind of counting how many times someone passes a ball. So it's all these really, really cool examples, but but we're not kind of, that doesn't really explain what a human being is. And people don't relate to either of those. So people are naturally overconfident, for example. No one sees themselves as Homer Simpson. And um, that's for sure. So in fact, if you ask people three questions, you know, how good are you in bed? How good are you at your job? And how good are you, how, how good are you at driving? You know, you will find that nine times out of 10 people rate themselves above average at all three of those things. And, and of course, it's not, you know, that's not possible. We can't all be above average at everything, right? So, so behavioral finance has moved towards um, really kind of identifying with normal people. Right. So what do normal people actually want? You know, we're not Homer Simpson. We don't identify with Homer Simpson. We don't identify with Spock. Uh, we're just a normal person. Right. And and um, in, a, in a survey that they conducted globally, you know, kind of what do people what do investors want? Um, and the number one thing investors want is financial security. Right. People want to avoid, you know, avoid slipping into the kind of into the into the trap of poverty. And if you think about sort of, you know, that in financial decision making terms, people making switches when markets crash is a completely rational decision if what you really want is to avoid financial ruin. For example, so that's kind of really where we've moved to. We've mo we've moved to a more normal kind of society and trying to explain what normal people want and the kind of how the brain, you know, works in a kind of a normal state um, and how the brain links up to those wants is really kind of where the neuroscience stuff comes in. Paul, yeah, that's very interesting. So um, you mentioned uh, Cass Sunstein and Richard Thaler and then also Dan Ariely. I remember. Um, seeing him once alive, and he did that um, gorilla experiment. Very interesting. Um, so, Paul, bringing it back to financial decision making, um, why do people make the choices that they do and make the financial decisions that they do? And also, I think you know a key to that is really unlocking. Uh, we've we've spoken very briefly about what people want, and we definitely need to understand that, right? I mean, if we don't understand what people want, it's very difficult to understand why they're making the decisions that they make. So, key is definitely understanding that. And behavioral finance, as I've explained, has moved on to to really kind of trying to describe normal people as opposed to kind of this you know this Homer Simpson Spock kind of scenario. But I think one of the keys here to understanding, you know, particularly switch decisions, for example, which are, you know, when people start in one investment, but sort of sometime along the journey, they move to another one, is that people don't just get utility when they buy financial products and services. So, so economists and finance professors, they were stuck in this whole kind of rut of, you know, explaining, you know, what, what benefit people get from, from buying things as utility alone, right? So utility is just the benefit we get from buying something. So a car would give us utility and that it gets us from A to B, right? So that's kind of almost just the, the actual benefit that you get. But people don't just get utility when they buy stuff. They get other things too. So, you know, marketers have understood this for a long time as well. And that's why marketing leapfrog finance many, many years, decades ago, because they understood that it's not just about utility. I mean, you know, you're selling a, a Patek Philippe watch for one and a half million rand. It better do something more than just tell the time, right? Which is the utility part of that. So, so people also get expressive benefits from buying goods and services, right? So that sort of, when they buy something, it actually gives them an opportunity to say something about themselves, right? So that's an expressive benefit. And if you think of L'Oreal, for example, you know, you, you know, because you're worth it. So the more amount you're willing to spend on the product, the more worth it you are. You know, so, so kind of marketers have understood this. And, and finally, of course, there's, there's emotional benefits as well, right? So there's, 
you know, kind of how does the product make us feel? And this is really a key to unlocking, I think, what um, what drives switch decisions in South Africa. I mean, so if you go to a bri, you want to be able to tell your friends and family and boast and brag about how you bought Bitcoin when it was twenty thousand dollars and you know not sixty thousand dollars, for example. Right. So you get a definite. That's an expressive benefit. So making that decision to buy Bitcoin is telling your friends that you're smart. You know. And if you look mm. at the flip side of that, there's also an emotional cost, right? So so there's an emotional cost of picking losers. So so we're stuck in this rut um, as investors that we're picking constantly, picking winners or picking. Um, um, rather funds or, or investments that have been winners and hoping that it's just going to uh, sort of continue into perpetuity. And of course, that's not going to happen. So so that's really kind of, I think, the, the important thing is really understanding here that we are human, um, understanding what normal people want and understanding what the benefits and costs are of making investments that really kind of get us into a position where we can help investors to make better financial decisions. Thanks, Paul. That was fascinating and very interesting. And thanks for joining us. You've been listening to another production from Solid Gold Podcasts.